Please turn with me to Ephesians 2. We're going to pick back up there, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. We looked at them last week, and we'll look at them again here this week. Ephesians 2. We started this conversation last week, that the faith that saves is necessarily coupled with repentance. So this is at the bottom of page 35 is where we are. The faith that saves is necessarily coupled with repentance. And we should not be scared of this word, repentance. Sometimes that you know, freaks us out because we've heard abuses of that word in different places. Uh, different religious movements use that word to mean other things. But it does come right along with faith. They are two sides of the same coin, faith and repentance. A strictly literal translation of that word for repentance is... The word is metanoia. It means to change one's mind. Scripture goes farther, meaning it also indicates a change of action. So you have that box there on page 35 in the bottom right, that repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of action. It's a God-given sorrow over sin and a desire for holiness. A God-given sorrow over sin and a desire for for holiness. That's what repentance is. Notice that repentance is not defined as perfection. This is, that's important. Repentance isn't defined as um, never sinning in that area again. Like some people might think, if you repented from lying, that means you'll never ever tell a lie again. That's not what that means. Repentance doesn't mean being perfect. Repentance does mean, though, that you have changed your mind toward the sin So you were an idolater before, and now you've changed your mind about that idol you've worshipped, and you no longer desire to worship that idol. You you thought lying wasn't a big deal, and then you changed your mind about it. Now lying is a big deal, and you have God-given sorrow over that sin, and you have a God-given desire to be holy even as He is holy. Okay, so let's look at Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 again this week. Like I said, we looked at it last week, but um, we'll look at it again now. Would someone uh, please read this for us? Do what? I don't know. I, I made five copies this morning and got them out. Okay, yeah, let's pass that up to Dean, if you would, please. Okay, would someone please read Ephesians 2, 8 through 10? Who can read that for us? Dax, you got it? Okay, go ahead. Okay, so focus on verses 8 and 9 right here. Verses 8 and 9, they are about salvation. And look at what it says. Salvation is by grace through faith. It it is a gift of God, salvation is. Salvation is a gift. It's not something that you're charged for. It is free. It is a gift of grace. It explicitly says salvation is not of works. And it says, because of all this, no one can boast. No one, is, no one is able to boast in his own salvation because it is not of works. What involvement did you have in your own salvation? Well, you contributed the sin that made it necessary that you would be saved or made it uh, you know, uh, something that needed to happen to you. But you didn't save yourself. It wouldn't be by grace. You didn't pay God for it. It wouldn't be a gift. You didn't earn it from God. It wouldn't be a gift. It's explicitly not of works. But let me ask you this. 
If you are truly saved, can you have verses 8 and 9 of Ephesians 2 and not Ephesians 10? Look at what Ephesians 10 says. Good works. Can you have 8 and 9 without 10? No. They go together, don't they? If you have truly been saved by grace through faith, you will have works that follow. So even though your works do not contribute to your salvation at all, you have good works that flow out of your salvation, don't you? So, just a really basic way of uh, illustrating this. See, I think this one's a little bit better. Okay. World religions teach, outside of biblical Christianity, that you have good works that lead to your salvation. I'll do this one in cursive. I'd hardly ever do cursive anymore. Is that pretty? Look at that. Look how pretty that is. I'll even do a little heart. Look at that. <laughs> salvation. Okay. <clears throat> All right, so, so world religions outside of biblical Christianity teach, get this going on in your life, good works, and that will pull you up to salvation, that'll get you up to salvation, that'll earn for yourself this blessing from God, you got to earn it. Biblical Christianity, though, says that's not a possibility, you actually first get saved, and out of salvation flow good works. The order is exactly different than what world religions teach. First comes salvation, this born-again experience, being saved by God on the basis of faith alone, by His grace, because of the work of Jesus Christ, and out of salvation comes good works. That would be repenting from sin. Repentance comes in here, okay, after someone is saved, because if a person is truly dead in sin, as we see that the Bible teaches, what kind of good works could a dead in sin person do in the first place? None. Dead in sin. Not innocent, not neutral, not, you know, I'm a pretty good person, but I just have these bad habits. No, dead in sin. Spiritually dead. Poke it with the stick, dead. Okay? But when a person is quickened, when a person is made alive in Christ, now the living person can produce holy works because of the living God working in and through that person. Salvation has to precede good works, but good works have to follow salvation too if someone is truly saved. That's just the way God set it up. So if a person is not showing evidence of holiness in his life, that then is a cause of concern, isn't it? If there's no desire for holiness, if there's no sorrow over sin, that's a cause for concern. That, that's showing that that person's nature is kind of like that dead nature, dead toward holiness. So evidence for someone's salvation are the good works that follow. Reception of salvation is by grace through faith. Reception of salvation is receiving a gift, not of works in any way. But verse 10 of Ephesians 2 the good works that God designed beforehand, those are the evidence of salvation. Repentance comes with faith, and it's evidence of that faith. If a person does not have repentance going on in his life, which is defined in that box there at the bottom of 35, if that's not going on in a person's life, that's evidence that that person has not come to know the Lord. Okay? 
Now, can we judge with God's judgment and sit back and say, ah, you're not saved because you're not doing X, Y, Z? No, you cannot. But you can say, brother, sister, I'm concerned because this is what I'm seeing, and this is what Scripture says, and I just want to, I want you to think about this, and I want you to explain to me what, what you're thinking, and have that kind of conversation. It's a serious thing, okay? Okay, a few more passages for us to look at. Uh, first, repentance doesn't mean ceasing from sin for the rest of your life. You can't do that. I can't say that enough. It does not mean perfection. It does not mean I'm going to stop doing this thing and I will never, ever do it again. Okay, that's your, that should be your attitude. That should be your goal. But that's not what repentance means. Repentance means you have a, a godly sorrow over that sin, a godly hatred toward that sin, and you have a desire to change. Okay? And it does result in a change of living, but not perfection. Okay, let's look at Luke 24 together. Let's all turn there. Luke 24, it's the very end of Luke's gospel. So if you're in John, you just need to go back a few pages to Luke 24, starting at verse 44. This is the resurrected Christ speaking to his disciples. Would someone please read this for us? Luke 24, 44 to 49. It's Jen, go ahead. All right. So Jesus here in his resurrected state is teaching them still. And look at verse 47. The heart of the gospel message that's going out to the whole world is repentance for forgiveness of sins. Here we are given the heart of the gospel's content, which is, of course, the death and resurrection of Christ, and the call to action. You're calling people to repent, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent. This is at the heart of the gospel. The faith that saves brings with it repentance from sin. And we'll see this in some other places in the New Testament also. It is not inappropriate. So to phrase that in a better way, it is very appropriate to call people to repentance whenever you're sharing the gospel, proclaiming the gospel. Uh, these are people who need Jesus Christ. Previously, they were rejecting Jesus. Repent of your rejecting of Jesus. Repent of the uh, sin that you hold so, so dear, the idols of your heart, and worship Christ alone. Okay, that is the call that we give to people, to repent and believe the gospel. We see this powerfully in 1 Thessalonians. Let's go there together. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting in verse 2. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 2 through verse 10. Now, here in this passage, you will not see the word repentance, but you will see repentance. Okay? 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, a little bit of a longer passage, but would someone read this for us? 2 to 10. 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 to 10. Mike, go ahead. All right. So look at verse 4 with me again. Verse 4, Paul says, you can know his choice of you. You can know that God chose you for salvation. And then he goes on in verses 5 and 6 to describe how they can know that. What does he say? Yes. 
good. With conviction, what do you think that conviction was of? Sin, yeah. So you can actually talk about conviction in a positive way and in a negative way. When you're convicted of sin, that's negative, right? You're convicted of something that's wrong. But we also talk about you need to have conviction. Like, uh, say, in uh, football, Matthias just got done with his football season. Praise God for that. Uh, and you say, okay, you've got to run the ball with conviction. That means you've got to commit, right? You've got to go. I mean, if you're going to get the ball, run straight. Don't get scared of the defense and run that way, which a lot of that happens at that age level, okay? But you've got to run with conviction. So that's, all, that's a positive thing. What, do you, what kind of positive conviction do you think they had? Yeah. Believing in the gospel message, belief in the death and the resurrection of Christ. So there's a con- probably conviction of sin coupled with that, two types of conviction. Okay, keep going. Verse 5, verse 6. What else was evidence of their salvation? Hey, they became imitators of the missionary team that was there. A desire to imitate those who are more mature in the faith. Remember, as Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He taught that to the Corinthians. Okay, what else? Verse 6. Mm-hmm. Joyful in what circumstances? Yeah, even when it was challenging to believe even when there was a cost associated with it. I mean, that's, that's true faith. That's true repentance, isn't it? When you have to, like, pay the social price to believe in Jesus. And some of you might know what that's like around here. And back then, all kinds of pagans, or if they were Jewish, they had the synagogue that they would go to every weekend. All that social pressure. And yet they still believe, they still receive the word with joy in the Holy Spirit. What about verse 9? Look at verse 9. What, where do you see repentance in verse 9? Good. Can you turn to God with idols still in your hand? That's repentance. You've got to drop the idols in order to cling to the cross. You can't hold on to the cross if you've still got your idols in your hand, okay? So a lot of repentance going on in 1 Thessalonians 1. Paul reminded them of their repentance to encourage them assuring them of God's choice of them. They turned to God, which means they turned from evil. They desired to serve God. That is repentance. Okay, it's not uh, perfection. Again, it's not a prerequisite. They didn't qualify themselves to receive salvation. They didn't say, you know, Paul didn't say, okay, become uh, mature Christians and then you can get saved. That's not what he's saying. He's saying your desire for holiness, your desire for maturity is evidence that you are Christians because repentance necessarily comes along with faith. Okay? We'll look at one more passage and then I'll pause for questions on repentance. And that passage is there on your sheet, Titus chapter 2. So let's all turn there together also. Titus 2, 11 to 14. Titus chapter 2. Verses 11 to 14. Who can read that for us? You got it, Stan? Okay. Okay. So look at just verses 11 and 12, the first two verses of that passage. What does salvation instruct? Good. So look at this. Like going back up to this really simple illustration, salvation 
instructs us to do good works, meaning to imitate God, to grow in holiness, to take the holiness of God, bring it to bear on our lives, to apply the knowledge of Jesus Christ in our lives. That's what salvation does. Salvation instructs us. Okay? Now, verses, uh, or just verse 14, why did Jesus give himself for us? There are, of course, a couple of answers, but according to verse 14, what does it say? Okay. Okay. So you've got, on the one hand, lawless deeds, otherwise known as what? Good. Sin. Okay. So we are redeemed from lawless deeds in Christ. He, he paid the price. He, he paid what we owed, the debt we owed for our lawless deeds, our sin against God, our rebellion against God. Jesus paid it all. And now, positively, what does he desire from us? What, what was part of the goal of this redemption, the, the second part? Okay, that we would be possessed by him for good. Okay, zealous for good deeds. So you see on one hand it says lawless deeds, and on the other it says good deeds. But those come after redemption, after being possessed by Christ. When Christ purchases you, when his blood sacrifice is applied to you, and you realize you were bought with a price, you are owned by Jesus Christ, what follows is good deeds. He redeems us from lawless deeds, and he sets us on a path for good deeds. So that's repentance, isn't it? Turning from sin, turning to God. It's a continual thing in the Christian life. So God is not only giving people a new eternal destiny, but he's giving them new lives now. Notice that this happens before heaven. Now it's true, when you're redeemed by God through the work of Christ, you'll go to heaven when you die. If the Lord continues to tarry, you'll always be with the Lord. You have the hope of heaven. But what's also true is between now and that time, you got this life to live. And he redeemed you so that you would be zealous, energetic, enthusiastic, passionate about good deeds because they please God. That you would be passionate about pleasing God in this life. So this kind of goes against that whole fire insurance notion, doesn't it? That some people say, well, I, I signed up for fire insurance when I was six at summer camp. And so I'm, it's all good. Is it really all good? Did you understand that Jesus was purchasing you and now your life is not your own? And now until the day you die, he has set you on this path to honor him with your life? Not just to get the fire insurance, but to live for your insurance agent every waking moment of your life, even sleeping moment of your life, okay? Christ's giving of himself was for the purpose of our holy living today, that we would be zealous passionate to please him. And if this part's missing, again, if this passion for holiness is missing, that indicates something went wrong back here, possibly. And those are the kind of conversations we have to have with each other. When, when there's no desire for holiness, no sorrow over sin, say, okay, let's go back to the gospel and make sure you understand this. Okay? Not perfection, but a desire for holiness. To please God. Okay, 
Thoughts or questions on repentance at this juncture? Well, it's kind of like uh, those things that happen when you're saved. Is it uh, faith, then regeneration, or regeneration, then faith? Does God cause you to be born again, and because he's done that, now you profess Christ? Or, apart from God's work, do you profess Christ, and then that causes you to be born again? Scripture almost speaks of it both ways, depending on what passage you're in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Uh, back earlier on an earlier slide, I said faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. So you're flipping a coin through the air. Is it heads, then tails, or tails, then heads? As it flips. It's the same coin. You've got to have both of them, regardless of which one you put first, right? You've got to have both of them. Now, um, if we want to get really particular, we have to say, of course, that uh, all good works come from faith in Christ. You can't do any good work apart from faith. So logically, there is that precedence, okay? However, our call, just like Jesus said at the end of Luke, is called a repentance or forgiveness of sins. And they, they are just so connected that anytime we just start really wanting to separate the two, we kind of start getting ourselves in trouble. So we, we keep that logical part of it. It's like, okay, any good thing I do has to be done in faith. In that sense, faith precedes. But at the same time, you can't say, yeah, I was a believer. I had faith for 30 years, but it wasn't until, you know, I was uh, 45 years old that I had a desire for holiness. Because that, that's really separating it to a fault now, isn't it? And saying you can have faith without any desire to please God. Can't do that. Okay, Dean and then Connie. Yeah, yep. Everybody's a work in progress, right? Um, but it will come. If someone's a true believer, that repentance will come. If it never comes, and... Because, I mean, I mean, when someone's a new believer, especially if he or she wasn't raised in a Christian home, doesn't have any knowledge of the Bible, everything is brand new. Then it's like, okay, well, this, it's going to take a while. Maybe. It doesn't have to. Jen, how much knowledge did you have of Christianity before you got saved? And Dean, how much fruit did you see in her life from day one? So there you go. And a lot, could, a lot of the same thing could be said for me in my testimony. I didn't have much knowledge at all, but salvation was real. <laughs> so that, that should stir up for the one who claims to be a believer. When we see fruit is lacking, that should stir us up. This life is for pleasing God, isn't it? Connie, what was your question or thought? Mm-hmm. Yes, yep, especially b- before the salvation experience, you're just, all you're going to do is reject the call, the gospel call, because there's a passion for your sin, and which is ultimately your own will, right? There's a passion for self. Gospel says, come and die. Sin says, keep living for yourself. So when God gets a hold of us and we die to sin, we're made alive to God, we're born again. Though there will still obviously be times where we suppress the voice of God, where we sin, the pattern of our life should be one of growing in holiness. And if that's not the case, there's a 
there's a problem, there's a breakdown somewhere. Other thoughts or questions? Good. Okay, a couple quotes on repentance. Oh, I thought there were. There they are. I'm going to do these first and then go back. You cannot turn from sin without turning to Christ or vice versa. Turning from sin points you in the direction of Christ. You don't need to turn twice, only once. So faith and repentance are the same thing viewed positively and negatively. Neither exists before the other and neither exists without the other. Going back to what you were just asking there, Dean. Um, thinking of how to, how to define sin in that first line up there, let's just say the sin of self-will. Okay, I'll be my own God and I'll make my own rules, I'll be my own compass. You cannot turn from self-will without turning to Christ or vice versa. Because it, you can't say you've turned to Christ and then say, I'm my own compass. I'm the captain of my life. I'm the authority of my life. If you say that Christ is your Lord, what does that word Lord mean? Master. And then you also walk around saying that you're your own master. You're a walking contradiction. You got to turn from being your own master that Christ would be your master. From MacArthur and Mayhew, it says, Scripture is unmistakably clear. Repentance is not an optional element, but it is an essential component of the true gospel. Those who insist that it is possible to savingly trust in Christ without repenting of sin find themselves in direct contradiction to the gospel according to Jesus and the apostles. Yep, no doubt about that. There's just no mistaking it. You read through how the gospel is presented, and it's come and die. Die to self. Turn from your wicked ways and embrace God. Okay. Don't cherish evil, cherish God, and he will start changing you from the inside out. The coupling of faith and repentance is most natural. The person who believes in Jesus necessarily repudiates all against him. Again, doesn't mean lives a perfect life, but has his face set toward God and against the things that God hates. Matthew 4.17 and Acts 20, you can just jot these down. I don't think we'll look at these in detail today. Um, Matthew 4.17 and Acts 20, 17 through 21 are important to look at this. Repentance was a key aspect of the call to believe. And I'll just tell you, Matthew 4.17 was Jesus' first words in his earthly ministry. You remember what his very first word in Matthew's gospel is Jesus came out of the temptation in the wilderness and now he begins his ministry. Do you know what his first word was? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. First word that Jesus proclaimed in his ministry was repent. So, pretty important, right? Pretty important. All right. Before we move on to the next part, anything to say here? Dean. Yes. And I would say, too, concern over your salvation is often a good sign. Because if you're not saved, are you going to be concerned that you're not saved? No, not, not, often, not often. There may be some kind of religious mindset you've been given that makes you think about that. But uh, most of the time, if you're concerned, truly concerned, that's a sign of life. And God is faithful. You go back to God and you go to his word. He's faithful to work in your life, and to create change, if you desire it. Okay. Other thoughts or questions? 
Okay, I gave you this little quote last week. The fruit of your faith can't save you, but neither can a fruitless faith. The fruit of your faith, you know, saying that, you know, you're, you're working up good works, that can't save you. But neither can a fruitless faith. If you say you have faith and there's no evidence that you desire holiness in any way, can that faith save you? This is the question James asks. No. True faith is one that's living toward God, a living faith. Okay? Those, those works that flow from faith don't save you. But a faith that doesn't produce works, that also can't save you. All right? faith, true faith is what saves you. And when you're a Christian, um, God is the one willing and working. This is Philippians 2, uh, 12 and 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So what is, what is living a life of good works in the Christian life? The vast majority of it is getting out of the way of the Holy Spirit. God is in you working. But Scripture says that we can quench him. We can grieve him. That means as he is instructing you through his word and prompting you through your daily living, grieving or, or uh, quenching means suppressing the voice of God and saying, no, I don't want to do that, and you go back to your sin. Don't do that. Don't do that. I mean, you're never going to be perfect at it, but your goal needs to be be led by the Holy Spirit in all things. Okay? And that's what true Christian living is. Okay, let's talk about imputed righteousness. As we continue to consider the gospel and the basics of the gospel message, imputed righteousness is extremely important. Top of page 36. The reason why people can be rightly justified by God upon faith is because the righteousness of Christ is imputed to them. Okay, so you've got uh, blanks there at the top that that is associated with. Um, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to them. What does justified mean, or to justify? What did you say, Mandy? Okay. We need to define both of these things, don't we? To justify means to be made right. Anything else? Anybody wants to add to that? Be made right? What else? Okay. Think of a, a judge justifying somebody. What is the judge doing? When he justifies someone on the stand. Okay. Made right to be declared innocent. Okay. To, to justify... Well, I'm kind of defining it differently, aren't I? To be justified. That's really what, that, what I'm doing. To be justified <laughs> means to be made right. To be declared innocent. Now, to impute means... To reckon or account. To put on someone's account. To impute something to somebody else. Um, you can impute wrong motives to somebody. If uh, someone does something that hurts your feelings, and you start thinking, well, why did that person do that? You can actually impute wrong motives to that person as you're thinking about, why did that person do that? I bet that person was, you know, doing that because, trying to get back at me because of this or that or the other thing. 
you're reckoning, you're accounting to that person bad motives, evil motives. Okay, that's what it means to impute. So here we're talking about imputed righteousness, where righteousness, holiness, perfection is imputed to the believer, reckoned toward the believer, accounted for the believer. Okay? We can be made right or declared innocent by God upon faith because the righteousness of Christ is reckoned or accounted to us. Imputation must logically precede justification. We could not be declared innocent apart from the merits of Christ's work given to us. This is really, really important. How is it that God can forgive your sin? You ever thought about that? About how to explain that? How could God say, the sins on your account, I don't consider them anymore? How is that? Okay. So there's a double imputation going on. What is imputed to Jesus on the cross? Everything that you've done wrong and will do wrong, imputed to Christ on the cross. So you commit adultery. Jesus was treated as an adulterer. Look at pornography. Engage in sexual immorality. Jesus was imputed your pornography use, your sexual immorality. Drunkenness, drug use, imputed to Jesus on his account, in the flesh, dying on the cross. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He became sin who knew no sin. Every lie you told, every time you dishonored your parents, every time you stole something, all of that. Jesus was considered those things. Child rapists, murderers. Jesus was imputed all of that on the cross. That's why he endured the wrath of God. The wrath of God towards sin. Now, the other side of that, those of us who have our sin imputed to Jesus and now believe in him, what do we get? His perfect righteousness, his total guiltlessness or innocence, his holiness is reckoned to your account. So you say, how could that be possible? How is it that God could give me the eternal holiness of Christ? Well, how is it that Christ could be imputed with our sin? Christ who is perfect in every way. It's out of love, out of grace, out of mercy. You've got to have this imputation going both ways. Because what if you only had the one? What if you only had Jesus taking your sin? That gets you to zero. Gets you out of debt. But with zero dollars in your pocket, zero righteousness in your pocket, can you enter heaven? A morally neutral person cannot enter heaven. Yeah, right. Uh-huh. Do you, do you get into heaven um, with a little bit of righteousness? Hmm? And he even went beyond that, didn't he? He loved his enemies. And he gave a new commandment that we would love each other as he has loved us. His love toward us is new. It goes beyond the law, above the law. Perfect eternal righteousness is required to get to heaven. 
So, that, I mean, this is really what's totally absurd about works-based religions. You really think that you trying your best is going to earn heaven for you? Your best, like uh, there's a guy who wrote a book, he uses the illustration of the, the game at the fair where you hit the deal to see how high the thingy can go. I, deal and thingy, okay? Yeah, you, you take the mallet, you smack the button thing, and then it shoots up zero to 100, right? And you see who can, who can hit it the hardest. God's righteousness is 100, we'll say that for the purpose of this illustration. You trying really, really hard, how high up can you go on that scale? How close to 100 can you make it? Yes. Yeah, maybe, maybe God will move the goalposts goal for us, right? No. God doesn't move the goalposts on his holiness. You have to have eternal holiness to be in the presence of the eternally holy one. And so you need not only Jesus to take away your sins, you need all of Jesus' righteousness to be given to you. That's what you need. And if you don't have that, you ain't going to heaven. You can't be in the presence of God forever and ever. You can't be apart from sin for all eternity, enjoying God and his wonderful creation. You need holiness, perfect eternal holiness on your account. A sinner's state is actually changed from being defined by personal rebellion against God to being defined by all of Christ's merits. So when you are a believer in Jesus, when God looks at you, when he considers you, does he see your sin? Oh, praise God for that. Okay, not, not many people answered strongly with that, so I want to really emphasize this point. Because if you're missing this part, what hope do you have? When God looks at you and considers what's on your spiritual account, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, he does not see your sin anymore. He sees the perfect holiness of his son. Isn't that a blessing? So God doesn't deal with you as a rebel anymore. He doesn't deal with you as an enemy anymore. As someone who's fighting him, even though in your flesh, you may be going through periods of fighting him. If you are a believer in Jesus, you are a son or a daughter of the king, and no one can change that. And you will always have this status before God. 2 Corinthians 5 is a very key text. Let's all go there. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 17 to 21. Someone please read this for us. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 21. Mandy, go ahead. All right. Amazing verses, some of my favorite verses. And you see here, these two factors playing together. How can you be reconciled to God if you've not been declared innocent, if you've not been made right with him? It's kind of synonymous, isn't it? Okay, we are justified by God, made right with him in this reconciliation that we have in Christ. And this reconciliation is based on verse 21. Look again at verse 21. He became sin. Whose sin? Yes, our sin. So that we might become what? The righteousness of God. See that imputation going both ways? He took our sin. He gives us the eternal righteousness of God. That is the great exchange. 
We are justified by God upon faith because the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. And if anyone is in Christ, this is verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, fully righteous in God's sight. Will you still sin? Yes. Will those sins ever count against you again? No. Because Jesus paid it all. And you've been made righteous in God forever and ever. Okay, Romans 5, 15 to 21. Let's go there. Just two books prior in the New Testament. Romans 5. Another just amazing passage. Romans 5, 15 to 21. I'll read this one for us. Notice as he goes through, he's doing two things. This is my preface for you. He is contrasting two things. He's contrasting sin with salvation. He's contrasting Adam with Jesus. Sin and salvation, Adam and Jesus. Okay, have that in your mind. Here we go. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Just as we were declared guilty because Adam's sin was imputed to our account, we are now declared innocent, justified, because Christ's goodness has been imputed to our account. The divide between the two sides is saving faith in Christ. All right, so here's another element to all of this. I'll carve out a little section here. I keep forgetting which marker is the good marker. There we go. All right, so your whole life you have had something imputed to you on your account. From conception even. You've had sin imputed to you through Adam. Okay? Sin imputed to you through Adam. We covered this um, several weeks ago. Let's see. Back on, uh, if you need a refresher on this, which I would recommend... You would need to go oh, way back. <laughs> okay, wow. That's been a little while. You would need to go back to pages 13 through 16 in your notes. Okay, 13 through 16, we covered that. Sin imputed to you through Adam. He was your representative. 
You say, well, I don't like that representative. Well, join the club, right? None of us like that representative. You might not actually like your political representative that you have, whether that's a governor or a senator or a representative or president, okay? You have a representative, whether you like him or not. Spiritually speaking, Adam is your representative from conception. Now, if you are a believer in Jesus, you now have righteousness imputed to you through Jesus. And he is your new representative. Talk about an amazing change of representatives. We get excited sometimes whenever really, really bad politician is replaced by just really bad politician, right? And it's like, okay, that's really exciting. Well, this is like the ultimate, the absolute worst representative that we could have, a fellow creature who has fallen in sin, replaced by the eternal God of the universe who is perfectly righteous in every way. One imputes sin to us. These, up at the top is what is imputed. One imputes sin. The other imputes righteousness. One gives you judgment and condemnation. The other one gives you salvation full and free. And what is the difference? What is, how do you bridge the gap here to go from this representative to this representative? Hey, it's faith and repentance, isn't it? Faith and repentance gets you from there to there. And it's a gift of God, lest anyone should boast. It's a sovereign work of the gracious God of the universe. Thoughts, questions on imputed righteousness. Yeah, yeah. Should fire you up a little bit, right? Okay, well, let me go through the final slides here. This is from the Heidelberg Catechism. They use a lot of words in theology. How are you righteous before God? Look at that first statement. Only by a true faith in Jesus Christ. Notice that the the first statement here, this is a very good statement, asking how are you righteous before God, that first statement points away from you. It doesn't say... Because I did this, I did that, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Nope. It's only because of the work of Jesus Christ. Through the true faith in Jesus, I am credited as righteous. Not because I earned it. It points away from works toward faith. That is, though my conscience accuse me that I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God and kept none of them, whoa, that's humility, isn't it? Totally setting aside all works for salvation. And I'm still inclined to all evil, yet God grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. As if I never had nor committed any sin, and myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me, if only I accept such benefit with a believing heart. Good stuff. If you do not hold to imputed righteousness, you will certainly hold to a different gospel. You got that on a blank there at the top of your page. 
If you do not hold to imputed righteousness, you will certainly hold to a different gospel. Because what happens if you take away the imputed righteousness of Christ? Now, how, how, do, you, how do you get righteousness on your account? Yeah, well, you, you just, it's left up to you. Go earn it. And is that the same gospel? No, it's not. That's a different gospel. Okay, a couple thoughts about heaven, and then we'll, we'll wrap up. This is really quick. We've got a couple of blanks here. Heaven, the full presence of the triune God, is the intermediate destination for all who have trusted in Christ alone for their salvation. So, there you go. There's a, a couple of big words to put in the blanks there. Intermediate destination. And we'll talk more about this when we get into eschatology, which is the study of the last things. And with what's going on in Israel right now, you kind of want to talk about that right now, don't you? Uh, but we'll get there. There is only one heaven. There are not three levels. The Bible does not teach levels of the presence of God. Okay, That's important to note for our context. You're either in the full presence of the triune God or you're not. Period. Okay. Those who are not justified by faith in Christ are found without his imputed righteousness and cannot enter the presence of God. Next week, we'll start the lesson off by discussing the reality of heaven and the reality of hell. Okay, so your final blank there is imputed. Those who are not justified by faith in Christ are found without his imputed righteousness and cannot enter the presence of God. Okay, very good. Well, I will uh, pray for us and then we will finish like one minute early. How cool is that? Maybe even two. All right, let's pray. God, again, we thank you so much for this day that you've made. We thank you for our salvation in Christ that you would love us so much that you would die for us, bearing all of the sin and punishment we earn for ourselves, and that you, out of your grace, would give us eternal righteousness, that we would be reckoned, accounted as perfect before you forever. Lord, we cannot even really, truly wrap our minds around this, but we trust your word, and you are our only hope. Lord, thank you so much for this salvation, this gift, that is in Christ. And help us today to exercise this gift well as we fellowship together and live for you wherever we may be or wherever we may go, whatever we may do, that we would honor you from the heart because of your gift of grace. In Jesus' name, amen.